For NPR Music, you're connected to all songs considered. I'm Bob Boylan today with Elvis Costello. That's Farewell OK, the opening track to Elvis Costello's thrilling new album. It's called The Boy Named If. I've been listening to Elvis Costello's music since his very first album in 1977. I was so stoked to talk about this new music. I love it. So I picked some songs to play from the new record. I asked to play some songs that helped shape his life. But after over an hour of chatting, we barely got to talk about his new album. Elvis was more excited to talk about how his mom and dad met at a record shop, how she refused to sell one of the very first portable record players to, well, well, I'm going to save that part. We hear the sounds of Peggy Lee, something Elvis Costello heard as a child. We hear his wife, Diana Krall, trumpeter Chet Baker, his love with Motown, and what a thrill ride this conversation turned out to be. We begin with an early childhood memory and a life-changing event. Some of my first sort of sensory memories are revolve around a Decadecalian, which is a kind of record player. It's one of the first standalone vinyl record players. And it's, you know, it's a design of consequence because I think they, they have them in the Victorian Albert Museum. Describe now, it. I don't they, know. I don't know what this Decadecalian. Like. It, it was the Pie Black Box was the first uh, portable record player in England. And Dan Set, obviously, and these other ones, which are, and there are other brands in America. But my mother was working in a record department of Selfridges uh, department store in London. And she told a story that one, she was demonstrating a pie black box record player. They only had one. The factory only sent one because they were trying to sell this new idea. Because prior to that, as you know, record players were sort of big bits of furniture. Yeah. Uh, you know, the early ones were Victrolas. And if you go back to Edison, machines from the 1910s they're really substantial cabinet they look like you should put your china in it or even some clothes and maybe that would make them sound better i don't know they sound pretty swell in our house so gradually they kind of miniaturized it long before transistor radios radios as you know were also quite big things in the Mm -hmm. for the most part and they had this black box that pi had made and that was going to be the revolution you could carry it from room to room it was unheard of you know and a large man came in and started trying to buy this one demonstration record player. And she said, I can't sell it to you. And he pulled himself up to his full height and started shouting that this was unreasonable. And uh, a mother who is, as I say, from South Liverpool, where you tend to be able to use your tongue as fast as your fists if you want to stay around, certainly in her time, particularly for a young woman of mid-20s, she just said, no, you're not having it. I can't sell it to you, sir. I'm sorry. I want demand to see the manager. And, and, <laughs> and it was only after the manager kind of hustled him out of the department because before they sold the one record player, the whole history of music might have been different if that pie record player had disappeared. Because nobody would have known they existed because that was the demonstration model. This is about 1951. And it was only after he left that the manager said, you do know who that was. And Mama said, no, I have no idea. He said, that was Orson Welles. Oh, my. 
And Orson Welles obviously rather used to getting his own way on the movie set as just sort of like, you know, he was in some terrible film that he took bit parts when he was trying to get money to make his own great films, you know. And I love Orson Welles, but that's a very comical image of Orson Welles having, a, having basically almost a fist fight with my mother over a record player. My attitude to music is colored by this kind of experience. And the fact that before that even occurred, my mother and father met across the counter of a record shop. So records hold a particularly special place for me. When I was born, we were living in a basement flat in the border of Olympia and West Kensington. If you wanted to make it sound posh, you said West Kensington, but it was just a row of Victorian terrace houses divided into apartments from the very top where a man lived in one room to the bottom where we lived in the servants' quarters as they would have been in the 1910s or thereabouts. You know, it was a modest place. We had a, you know, no bath and toilet at the end of the yard. So I'm not trying to make a poverty story out of it, but that was the reality of the way many people in England lived at that time and many other places. But my dad had just become a singer full-time. He'd been a trumpet player before that, been a trumpet vocalist with a dance band. And then he was hired the year after I was born for the Joe Loss Orchestra, and they were a very successful radio dance band. And with the money, he bought this Decadicalian because he had to learn a lot of songs for the repertoire, so they would send demonstration records. My first memories are of looking at the red on light. It was like a honeycomb grill in front of the speaker. It was a cream and pale blue covered vinyl record player, quite a big thing, but still portable. And that red light, I guess I must have been lying on the floor playing with my toys or even possibly still crawling. I don't know how far back your memory goes, you know. But I'm very conscious of records that my mother played. We didn't have a lot of records for pleasure because my parents didn't have a lot of money. They had some 78s that they'd brought down from Merseyside where they lived before that. We had my dad's Dizzy Gillespie records, my mum's Stan Kenton records. Not a lot of rock and roll. In fact, shall I tell you how many rock and roll records we had in our house? None. Wow. And the first vinyl albums I can remember the cover of are Songs for Young Lovers, which was a 10-inch, and Songs for Swinging Lovers, which was a 12-inch, and a 10-inch of Peggy Lee, which wow. was called Black Coffee. It was the Black Coffee album, but it was in a 10-inch edition, which wasn't the complete album. But it was the sound of that voice as it was with Sinatra and Ella Fitzgerald and the other singers, Nat Cole, that my mother particularly liked, were really the first sound of music other than in the hills, as the song says. And I was very drawn to this very intimate stuff. Sinatra was one thing, because he had a lot of energy, unless he was singing a ballad, and there was, you know, songs for swinging lovers, as it suggests, is swinging bright music. Peggy Lee, on the other hand, was like somebody telling you a bedtime story. I didn't understand the implication. So I became fascinated with many songs. Can I play you something and then uh, see if it conjures anything for you? Okay, you do that. You're my three 
Just really, when you, if I don't like to speak you over Peggy Lee, I, I, I did actually meet once. She was so nice to me. Um, the opening, you can understand its attraction to a child's ear, can't you? Because it sounds like music in a fairy tale. And it's only now I'm older that I'm going, yes, these arrangers had heard Alban Berg. You know, they'd heard like... Tell us, Alban Berg, tell us, for those who don't They had heard Viennese music and some of the arrangers were very, very conversant with music from Vienna. And I know that now because I've, I got drawn into, you know, finding where all these sounds, but the use of the harp and the... This is not like, this is more like filmic music, isn't it? And a lot of film scores drew from, well, Rachmaninoff and, and Tchaikovsky, but also chromatic music, which, which kind of uh, suggests the shifting sands of fate, you know, in a story, swirling sort of harmonies. That comes from Wagner and Debussy and, and this sort of stuff where it's not even clear what key they're in until the guitar comes in. Uh, is really like Viennese music and not as extreme in its theory. It sounds very intellectual what I'm saying, but I, I'm not a musicologist. I'm, I just absorb this emotionally. So when I hear some of that Viennese music post Schoenberg, I don't hear the intellectual theory behind it. I hear where it takes you in a dream. And just as this does. Now, this song is like circled round. This song being You're My Thrill. I can think of versions of it that I've loved. Peggy Lee, the next voice I would think of singing it would be Doris Day, who also sang it beautifully. Mm-hmm. Julie London sang it very beautifully. Billie Holiday, Billie, right? Billie Holiday, of course, she would sing this beautifully. One of the most beautiful vocal performances is uh, Joni Mitchell's record from Travelogue with Vince Mendoza arranged. But I'm a little biased here because, I mean, my wife recorded this song, and it's not just, I'm not just playing you know, want to, you to play a little bit of this because it's the woman I love, because I genuinely think that it's the most connected to the sense of what this song can mean since I was a child and heard Peggy Lee. It's very strange. It's a very strange contradiction to hear Peggy Lee when you didn't know anything about sexuality, sensuality, yet you hear in her voice the pause is so, it's such almost erotic and definitely other versions are, so, uh, so let's go ahead and uh, and listen to Diana Krall doing "You're My Thrill" together. When I look at you 
Cause you're my thrill Did, did she know how much you loved this song when she made this no, version? No, no, no. I mean, we never discussed repertoire. Diana's process is very different to mine. Mine takes up a lot of time, you know, a lot of space and air because I'm, I'm a loud singer. Diana will be pondering songs. I mean, she's a very rare uh, singer um, in the contemporary era in that she's genuinely an interpretive singer, which was the, it's the thing that marked out um, singers from the 1950s particularly, particularly after the record album became a thing. Because then you weren't just down to one song being played on a jukebox or a record player on the radio, but people like Sinatra kind of, um, he really developed the what we now stupidly call concept record. Of course it has an idea behind it, but the idea of programming a sequence of songs over two sides of a vinyl, 12 or 10 inch, was almost like Sinatra's invention at the level of emotional commitment that he brought to records like um, Only the Lonely or No One Cares. And, uh, you know, the the, the uh, Ella Fitzgerald songbook records where it would be Rogers and Hart or Cole Porter or George and R. Gershwin, but they that was before that was commonplace to do that over an album. Now everybody is doing them, whether or not they should. And I think in the, not to put any singers down, but I don't hear two qualities that are essential to interpretive singing, curiosity and humility in the modern era. They are essentially recreating another version that they heard on a record. So that's different. That's a different skill, and it is a skill. It's called covering. And in the single record era, in the, from the time that popular records were easily disseminated, there were many, many interpretations. Some of them were not much more than somebody singing off sheet music. This is a hit. Let's make another hit. And the ubiquity of a song could be spread over seven renditions, many of them this, almost the same with just a different vocal timbre. And only through jazz did they become so much more ambitious. You hear things as, uh, you know, you're an artist who works completely different than she does. What does that do for you? Like, you can't sing or play piano like her, but it comes out of you in some way. Is there some music, other music that you've made that maybe you could be an example of? Oh, there's of? Lots, of, lots of music that I have made over the years, which refers to other idioms than the one I began with. I think that... Uh, I wrote songs, particularly in the early 80s. I mean, as soon as I bought a piano, I had access to different harmonies than one could encounter with my limited abilities as a guitar player. I could suddenly see the whole diagram of harmony in front of me, and I tried in my way to follow that thread. And from the listening that I did in that time was almost exclusively jazz and classical music. I didn't really listen to other than the hit parade. I just needed to know what our pop competitors were doing. And I had to accept I was what I was dreaming was very far away from that. So that's when I wrote Shot With His Own Gun and Almost Blue, which Chet Baker later recorded. That was like it's something in a dream. Chet Baker came to London at that time and played on the record shipbuilding. And I gave him a copy of my, my song. And he later recorded it. I sadly didn't know he'd recorded it until after he had passed.
He was a fascinating, if sometimes upsetting, person. But, I mean, I'd been through, I'd absorbed all the music of the 1960s. It goes without saying that I'm hearing music which is both thrilling, music that emerged out of rock and roll, like the Beatles and R&B, the Rolling Stones out of R&B. You know, I didn't know who Slim Harper was when they did I'm a King Bee. I had to hear <laughs> Mick Jagger sing at first. Then I heard Slim Harper. Then I went, now that's how it goes. You know, Muddy Waters singing, I just want to make love to you. I'm sure Mick Jagger would admit now, sounds a little more consequential than Mick singing at, at 23, you know. But you've got to love that they wanted to sing those songs. John Lennon singing, You Really Got a Hold on Me, is not necessarily better than Smokey Robinson and the Miracles. But for me to hear that song, sung by the group I loved, was wonderful. And then all at once, this music arrived in England, which I think sort of put everything on a different track. It's what we call Tamla in England, Tamla Motown label. And all these incredibly poised, beautifully dressed young singers who we didn't know where they came from suddenly all appeared all at once. And there was one Friday evening television show which you always tuned into called Ready, Steady, Go. And one week they gave it completely over to the Motown oh, sound. Wow. And we saw like Stevie Wonder and Marvin Gaye and The Temptations and I think maybe The Supremes or maybe Martha and the Vandellas. I can't remember who was on it because it, it was such an impact. I couldn't even remember them by the end of it. It was just a, what was that? And next week we were back to four lumpy lads from Bolton doing a cover <laughs> of, you know, Fortune Teller or something, jumping around in with Beatle haircuts. You know, everybody tried to look like the Beatles after a while. That was a, like a glimpse of style and just vocal excellence. How about if I play this uh, for you and you can... Yeah. a man to do Oh baby. baby I'll sacrifice for you I'll even do wrong for you Oh baby Every minute Every hour I'm gonna shower you with love and affection Look how it's coming in your direction That's, I mean, that's one of the great gifts of recording music. I hate to speak of it, Diana Ross, but you've got to say, that's Eddie Kendrick singing at the top, and that's as good as you can sing. Anybody right. can sing. This is the Temptations and the Supremes together. Yeah, it's, together. Uh, and this is, yeah. So by that time, you know, I'm sort of like, I can see myself on the dance floor, the edge of the dance floor. You're about how old, 15 or? 14. Uh, sort of trying to, uh, you know, pluck up the courage to ask some girl to dance. And 
you know, in my dream of my life, we're having the conversation in this song, which of course we're never gonna have. And, uh, you know, that's, that's what I remember. That's why it's always emotional, because it's not sentimental or, I suppose it is sentimental, but it's not full of sentiment to me, but it's not nostalgic, because I don't want to go back to that indignity particularly. You know, I'm doing just fine. But the, um, the thing about it is, well, first thing to note, the introduction, you just hear the feel of the band, these incredible musicians Motown had, none of these people were in rock and roll. They were in jazz and R&B. The way they play, you can tell. This hypnotic groove, there's no drum machine involved. There's a spaciousness to the music. Spaciousness and the orchestration, you know, the simple orchestration. The Temptations singing backgrounds, it's one of the great songs of all time. Them as a choir, quite often singing on other people's records, disguised. And then... Eddie Kendricks, and then, you know, Diana Ross, which is, at this point, it's about as good as a voice can be for recording. Where her voice operates on the microphone, it sounds like it's being amplified by something, by other some other source. It sounds like, to me, it sounds like a sort of, when it went onto the microphone, it sounded like it came from a speaker already because it came from her incredible, you know, vulnerable voice. And, I mean, there's the there's a spoken bit on it, which is, you know, very much of its time where they have the dialogue. And then Eddie Kendricks hits a note, which you can't write down. You know, it's just a note beyond all imagining. It's one of the most thrilling moments on any record by anybody. That band had David Ruffin and Eddie Kendricks, but they had all those other great voices all around them. And, you know, Diana Ross had the Supremes. Mary Wilson was a great singer, Cindy Birdsong, Florence Ballard. This music just, it was so much more than most English beat groups could play. And nobody could sing like this. Nobody sing like Marvin Gaye. Anybody sing like Marvin Gaye, Smokey Robinson, Stevie Wonder, you know, and he was still a teenager doing things that were just mind-bending. And that's before he really took charge of the production of his own records and, you know, made Talking Book and things like that. I mean, we were so lucky to live in that time. And it's not nostalgic because it's great music informed by this. But when you listen to this just next to... You know, a sophisticated orchestration like Klaus Ogerman, this is sophisticated music at its most heartfelt and expressive. So that's one thing. Elvis Costello, what a thrill to talk to him. We'll be back with more of this conversation in just a minute. You're listening to All Songs Considered from NPR Music. What I love about what's happening so far is that we're talking about hearing things, absorbing them, and either you doing something with that, with what you hear, or you having done something and someone hears what you do and they take it. Just talk about the way things take shape and pass along. Well, we seem to have, you know, I don't think we intended necessarily to make this solely about orchestration, but the one thing it's unavoidable, even when you go to a song I heard as a teenager, Listening to it now, I hear the temp- Springs and the Temptations, all the elements of support they get to tell that story, the way the voices are interact. Now, if you skip over all the records I made with the attractions, which is a lot of music, of very <laughs> yes. contrasting, some of which people really like, some of which people like a lot and never want you to do anything else, I sort of had the fortune to recognize when... I needed to step out into a different kind of performance, initially solo. I became very good friends with T-Bone Burnett. We talked about the songs that I was then writing, which were the King of America record. 
you know, that was the first experience I had of working for a whole or for most of an album with other players, mm-hmm. people like James Burton and Jerry Sheff and Ronnie Tyler would play with Elvis Presley. And what do you think like, it brought out of you? Well, simply that they were more accompanists than pushing into the foreground. And it's a kind of an American-English kind of approach. And if you think about all the English rock and roll bands like The Who and the Led Zeppelin, it's like the person who's playing is really in the foreground. Nobody stays in the background just laying it down. Interesting. To say. I yeah, never thought about things that way. Oh, so yeah. do you want to yeah. illustrate uh, something that you did with T-Bone and pick something there? No, Would not especially, be no, because the point I was leading to is that yeah, okay. I think it opened a door to the possibility the attractions, you know, were a very, very good group that were of a single mind, or it seemed to be of a single mind, for maybe only one record, which was this year's model. After that, it was me sort of trying to drive the train off various roads, you know, the car off various <laughs> roads. And some of the results, were, you know, Armed Forces was one thing which was drawing from all sorts of ABBA and David Bowie and Burt Bacharach, I have to say, that, you know, all sorts of ambitious ideas, but still just trying to make a pop record for the radio. And when that kind of thrill ran out, I went back to R&B, to the things that I that I absorbed from listening to Stax and listening, and we make Get Happy. Then I bought a piano, and that changed everything. What year is that? That would be 1980. And That's then that—that that is the reason why both I went to the melancholy of ballads. I went to Nashville, made a record after we made Trust, which has Shop With His Own Gun on it. I went to Nashville, recorded a bunch of Nashville, you know, some songs that I had been loving for 20 years. The producer, Billy Sherrill, who was responsible for many, many big countrypolitan hits, yeah. was bewildered that I wanted to cut all these old, as he thought, worn out songs. But we had a like a sort of a nine-day standoff informed by quite a lot of drinking and made this record, which was a hit in England, a huge hit. And not a hit at all in America, just horrified all the people that thought I should be making new wave records, whatever the hell they were. And I decided to make that we would go into the studio and do 12 weeks, which was enough time to make four albums in our <laughs> previous life. Right, exactly. With Jeff Americk, we'd worked, other than Jeff Billy Shaw, we'd only worked with Nick Lowe. Um, Nick and was our friend. Nick was somebody I had known since I was 17. We trusted and knew each other, but he respected that I needed to try something. And that important thing of having somebody accept or that you could trust. So Jeff Emmerich for Imperial Bedroom, letting Steve Nive's ability to orchestrate shine on a few tracks. His piano playing suddenly became much more expansive. I spent weeks and weeks in the studio with Jeff on my own, overdubbing vocal parts and different registers and really using the studio as an instrument. Then with T-Bone, I went the other way and stripped it to the acoustic guitar with with the instrumentalists who sat behind. And it opened up a, you know, this is leaving out two pop records we made every day I write the book, but working with Chet Baker on shipbuilding. So the possibility of hearing other colors within our own records or my records as they were shortly to become, because I then, the tractions disbanded, we had a very argument that we needed to have, and there were no more good records to make after Blood and Chocolate. And I spent a couple of years just listening, attending a lot of concerts of other kinds of music, jazz and classical music particularly, and building friendships with people in that world, because I had so much to learn, having never gone to college. You know, in that time, I also 
was invited to write songs for Paul McCartney. I mean, if I'd been out on the road with the attractions, that may have never happened. And why in the world would I have traded that experience? We wrote a couple of hit records. Uh, My Very Face was a big hit for him. Veronica was a big hit for me. I signed to a record label now with T-Bone. I did the opposite of King of America. We did a highly orchestrated record. But when I say orchestrated, we pulled sounds from all the elements of music that I loved and tried to make them serve these songs. It was a widescreen, crazy epic. It was like Cleopatra, you know, the movie Cleopatra, not the (laughs) Egyptian goddess or whatever she is, queen. But there were some marvelous moments in it. I went to New Orleans and can, can we play two. something? Play a little bit of Deep Dark Truth of America. That that's that sounds like it could have been a song that could have been on King of America, but I didn't write it then. One day you're gonna have to face the deep dark truth from mirror. And it's gonna tell you things that I still Love you too much to see The sky was just a purple bruise The ground was iron And you fell all around the town Until you looked the same I uh, see myself in the room at, I think it was called South Lake Studios. This was the second time I'd been to New Orleans to record. Uh, in the middle of the pop success we had with Every Day I Write the Book, we went to New Orleans to record with Alan a most unusual assignment to record Walking on Thin Ice for Yoko Ono for a record that she was working on with John Lennon when he was killed. And I was given the responsibility of recording the piece that, you know, re-recording the piece they were working on the night he was killed. It was very emotional to do it. And I really didn't know how we would make that record. And the opportunity arose to work with Alan Toussaint. because so I thought he'll come from outside and bring all sorts of musical ideas, which he did. He worked, I had a horn section, we were English horn section. He drilled them until they just punctuated. He worked with every member of the band of the attractions as it was then. We said goodbye at the end of that session, and I said, I hope we get to play together again. And it wasn't until we got to Spike in 1988 that I had this opportunity. Now I didn't have a band, so I was having to imagine everything that I could. After the awful disaster of Katrina, he came up to New York, and we began working together and wrote a bunch of songs and recorded a record called The River in Reverse, which we ended up completing in New Orleans. So it was a part of his process of going back to the city. And, you know, they just finally did the right thing and named the street that he lived on, the entire length of the street that he lived on. Mm. They took the name of the traitor, Robert E. Lee, off it, and they put Alan Toussaint's name on it. Alan Toussaint Boulevard. That's awesome. If I play this for you, uh, I'll play just a few seconds, bring it down, then you can tell people about it, and then uh, I'll play more of it. Here, Here we come. All right. What are we hearing? Well, this is Shut Him Down. 
This is uh, my friend Michael Lennon, wonderful trumpet player, orchestrator, and composer, and uh, I would say band leader in this. It's his orchestra. We got right round in a in a circle here, because in 2020 when I came home in a hurry from my last tour in in the UK, when things got a little tough. I had most of a record called Hey Clockface made, but I had no way to join the elements together. I had three tracks recorded in Helsinki on my own, nine tracks recorded in Paris with a wonderful ensemble of Par Parisian musicians and Steve Knife, and I couldn't find the join. And Michael asked me to contribute to what is the record he has just now completed, the Norman Sessions, having released this single uh, in last year, I believe it was, um, it may have been 2020. It's all blurred into one. <laughs> this was a rhythm I'd never played to. He said, I've never heard you sing anything like this. And I wrote the words. And, you know, it was the beginning of this recording over distance. Jay Swiss is about to enter, giving verses to this thing. And on this recording, Chris Potter takes it out on the bass clarinet. But when the album comes out, yeah. Here he comes. Yeah. You see, he, he hands it back to me. He's singing, he's saying some of the ideas of my verse, and this is the dialogue that you can have in these things. When we re-recorded uh, Chelsea, I don't want to go to Chelsea for, Spanish, for the Spanish model record, uh, Raquel Sofia sang a Spanish language adaptation of my words, changing some of the idioms. In the middle of it, a, a Dominican uh, a rapper Fuego came in, played off the theme of the thing. Uh, Thibaut Manette let me play on the radio the other night an, an unfinished track, which is called Skeletons, Skeletons and Statues, with a beat by DJ Premier, leading to verses by Black Thought, and then words by myself and a chorus with Rhiannon Giddens and Cassandra Wilson. This is the way we have to make music. We have to be together and not divided. It doesn't, it's not about politics, it's about art. It, and it is art, it's seven minutes of art and you'll hear it eventually. Now Michael has been kind enough to put me on this. This is Chris Potter playing now on the bass clarinet. Beautiful. So I believe this is going to open the record, this version. And this record comes out when, do we know? It comes out in March. Um, the Norman Sessions, right, the Michael Leonard Orchestra. I think this might be either the beginning or the end of the record. There's another version, another mix, which has Joshua Redman playing on it. And Joshua Redman's playing his father, Dewey Redman's tenor saxophone on a record for the first time. So we've got like two versions of this song in which you hear me singing, then you hear Jay Swiss's verses, and then we have a different soloist on, on the mixes that Michael created. 
my songs that I contributed the lyrics to to his music with Bill Frizzell are also on the record. But so people that come to the music from a different angle, never bought Hey Clockface, have never heard of my name, might hear my voice on Michael's record for the first time. Who knows? Listen to this. I love that. Let's hear the end. Love that. That's Chris Potter on the uh, bass clarinet. Michael Leonard, composed by Michael Leonard, and with my words and the words of Jay Swiss. So back announced it for you. You know, like, and we'll put all these versions of these yeah. songs online for people to hear in the clear. Let's go out on something from your new record. Tell me something you're proud of that you want people to hear and uh, and talk us. Well, you know, there's a, the, there's a, there, here's the thing. In 2018, after we made uh, Look Now, which was the first of the records over the last few years that I've worked on with Sebastian Chris, so excellent producer. I was in Liverpool and I went to see a movie by Pavel Pavlovsky called Cold War. Mm-hmm. I went to see it three times in one week. I was spending some time wow. with my mother who was in very, she was in, ill in hospital and it was a very important to me to keep like calm and enter into another world. And I went into the world of this incredible black and white movie about a couple who come out of post-war early Soviet Poland. And in the course of the, the, the music is a part of their courtship, part of their torrid a love affair, and they cross the border and in another time in the 50s appear in the jazz scene of Paris. Hmm. This I found very fascinating. And I became acquainted through Pavel's producer with Pavel. And we had the discussion with Tony Sosterian and him about the possibility of that story maybe being adapted to the stage. So rather than I hadn't been commissioned to write a score, just to simply illustrate that the story had affected me so much, I wrote two songs which appeared on Hey Clockface. The opening song of my album, Revolution 49, which was a semi-improvised piece with recitation, and a song called I Do, Zula's song, which was written Actually, the, those two songs represented the first and last scene of Pavel's film. Wow. Now, somewhere else in the midst of all of this, I focused on one particular very chilling line in which the lead character, who is a woman who clearly is hiding something, her lover says to her, is it true you killed your father? And she says, no, he mistook me for my mother. So I showed him a knife to to show him the difference. I, I used a knife to show him the difference. And I went, that's a song, that's a whole song. Now my song, The Difference, only borrows that one image, which I hope Pavel will forgive because it's done with all respect and love. But the idea of um, a young woman fending a seduction of a, of a boy of her age, because sadly, she has more experience than he does, even though he thinks he's leading her into temptation. It's in fact, she's well aware of what that can mean. And she's dealt with something much more serious in her life. Now that sounds like a very sad and troubling, but that's a real scenario that some people experience. And I took the precise imagery that came from Pavel's scene and tried to put it in a song which had all of the, you know, attractiveness of 
two people dancing and you know being in a, a romance only for one of them to step forward and propose something that that young woman doesn't knows better than to go there mm. she's she's not going to fall for this because she's already in a world without innocence and not to try and wrap it up in a, in a bow the record that we made takes moments like this throughout and speaks about what it feels like to be 13 in the death of magic thinking and to only have a glimpse of the desires that you will eventually be dominated by even at the expense of your wondrous imagination of childhood or a teacher in Penelope Hapenny who isn't so much a good teacher as a good example because she comes from a life of her own and she leaves the door ajar to a world that you cannot wait to enter. But you have no idea how to get there at that age. Later on, the songs are concerned with looking back on the consequences of some of the less um, responsible actions. I tried to think about what it felt like to be 24, raging around New York, not knowing who I was in love with or who I could trust or who was my friend and who was telling me lies. Vanity, desire, all swirling up. A performer revisiting a, a, a theater and he discovers that the whole audience is made of ghosts. A man looking back at his, you know, from his scandalous old age on, on the betrayal of a woman that he seduced who was a novice. Even though he's done all these disreputable things over a long and colorful life, he still longs for her, even though he doesn't even consider for a moment where that love affair left her. So, I mean, there's a lot of ideas which is why I try to put some of them in story form so they could maybe, you could read this and you would know, look at this picture and you could know, if you never see or read or are even mildly curious, the song will take you somewhere. The band have never played better. They played from the, the inside out, from the inside of the songs and the feeling. And let's face it, for 45 years, three of us have played together, 20. That's crazy. Uh, that the four of us have played Never mind who we used to be in 1978. Never mind who we used to be in 2002. Right. All the things that we have traveled through as young men. Steve Naive was 18 when he joined the group. So he's still young. All this time, inevitably, hearts have been broken. Children have been born. Some of us have been, been divorced. They've changed in so many ways. We've lost parents. It's not like we're these group of sentimental friends or members of an old regiment. We've fallen out. We've not spoken for years on end. We've played together. Pete's played on all but two of my records. And you've grown together so much. So we all have been, like, through so many different scenes, joyful misadventures, excitements, successes, never see us again. You, they'll never make a record again. They're finished. No, we're not. <laughs> no, we're not finished. <laughs> we are here. And all these things that we've talked about are why? Because there's all these things to love. And I genuinely love what I do. I have no idea how much time is ahead. I know for sure that everything that's been behind has had a lot of good fortune in it. But the way to pursue it is twofold, curiosity and hard work. Forget those other concepts of divine intervention if that's ever there i would love that but i know for sure that curiosity and the willingness to find out and then be beyond that experience pick up the first instrument you played and finding it's all new again 
is the reason to do different things. And if people don't understand that by now, I really can't help you. <laughs> you know, they, they, you, if you, you just don't understand what it is we're doing. If you think doing the same thing for 45 years in music and never trying to learn anything else would be a good idea, think about how boring that would sound and then you'll soon stop. <laughs> well, I really appreciate you and your attitude because that's why I'm talking to you today. I first saw you uh, in 1978 at a place in D.C. at the Warner Theater. I've been listening to you I since your first Warner record. And, oh, you. you remember it, yeah. And I wouldn't still be hearing you and spending time hearing your music if it didn't do that evolution. So thank you for all you do. Thank you. Thank, thank you, you for I appreciate today. And as a, you know, there were other songs that we could have talked yeah, of. Well. But that leaves us something else to talk about the next time, doesn't it? I love that. It's been a real pleasure to speak with you. Thank Likewise. you for your thoughtfulness and uh, hope Cheers, I didn't uh, drift too far from shore. Uh, I, I'm all ears. Be well. All right. Okay. Thank you, my Be friend. Well too. Elvis Costello. Up on many of the songs we played together as a playlist on the All Songs Considered site, his new album, The Boy Named If, is out, and I'll take us out on the song he spoke about called The Difference. I'm Bob Boylan for NPR Music. It's All Songs Considered. I put a pencil from the flower to tell just where my fortune fell. 